chapter 3 of Job. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night it was said a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. Darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May a blackness overwhelm its light. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for the daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn, for it did not shut the doors of the womb of me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stubborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food, My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, If someone venture a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who have stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you're discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. 
amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I couldn't tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed, they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, authoritative word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Amen, Amen sister. Amen. Amen. Quick definition. So I'm going to use this word a lot probably during the sermon. The word is lament or lamentation. Comes from the same word. And it, that simply means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. We have like lamentations in the Psalms. Why, Lord? And, and the psalmist will complain. That's a lament. We have a whole book called Lamentations in the Bible. Just so you know. All right? Sometimes preachers use a word and doesn't, don't tell you, it doesn't tell you what it, they don't tell you what it means. So, All right. So, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the title of this sermon is The Life and Trials of a man called Job. <laughs> it, it would make a good movie, but boy, would it be a tragedy. Amen? At least the, the most of it. Well, we've seen so far that after this incredible devastation that's been poured out upon Job, we've seen he's been called a blameless and an upright man. We saw that he passed the test. Remember that test between God and Satan? Remember there was that challenge? There was the challenge of he's an upright man, a righteous man, feared God, shunned evil. And remember what the devil said? The devil said, well, take everything away from him because he only serves you for what he could get, and I'll have him curse you to your face. Remember, God did that, and if you remember, Job passed with flying colors. Round one, knockout, right? He said, what does he say? The Lord give, giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Very happy, right? And then we saw the second test. Remember, there was that second heavenly vision we got. And again, you had God and Satan and the angels. And again, God says to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Even though you incited me to go after him with no reason, he still maintains his integrity. And the devil goes, skin for skin. Man will give everything he has for his life. You stretch out and touch his flesh and bone. In other words, hurt him physically. Let him have physical pain, and I'll have him cursing you to your face. You remember what God says? Go ahead. Do it. But just don't kill him. And if you remember, amazingly, in chapter 2, we have where his wife then, of course, the bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, right, with a helper in uh, meat for him looks at him in his sad condition as he has these boils, as he's scraping these wounds with, with a broken pottery, and she says to him what? Curse God 
and die already. She's the mouthpiece of Satan. The one who's supposed to encourage him, right, is, is the one who the devil uses the most in his life. And his answer, I'm, this, it's a shocking answer. If we haven't heard the story so much, we would be shocked by the answer. He says, you speak like a foolish woman. Shall we not accept trouble from the Lord as well as good? We're talking round two. Perfect. We're all happy. So many of the sermons stop there. <laughs> That's all you're going to hear about Job. Then comes the chapter we just read. That's chapter three. After a week of silence in the presence of his three friends, and by the way, they were doing good by keeping their mouths shut for seven days. Because once we see what they do when they open it, my goodness. They were much better off. You know, when I'm in the studio and I'm trying to do these crazy guitar leads, sometimes my buddy Matt will say, less is more. You know, simplify. Well, I, I always say with guitar, no, more is more. But in this case, with the friends, less is definitely more. Like, a lot less. Like, maybe none. But I'm just saying. So what we see here is we're going to see, as we looked at, at chapter 3 and as we look at it in detail this morning, we're going to see that Job lets out one of the darkest, gloomiest, depressing lamentations in all the Bible. It's so honest. It's so searching. It's so despairing that almost all the commentaries that I've read look at it and say the Job of chapter 1 and 2 ain't the same Job as chapters 3 to 31. They say there's such a drastic difference between this man who had such grace under pressure in chapters 1 and 2 and then just seems to pop in chapters 3 to 31. So far, my favorite commentator, I'm not even going to tell you who he is so far because uh, my point is not to put him down. He even says such a thing that I have to say I, I disagree wholeheartedly with and it's very rare I disagree with him. And he says, you may, if you look fast forward to the book of James, you know the letter of James? In case you didn't know this, James chapter 5, James says, you remember, my brothers, the perseverance of Job. And he holds Job forth as an example of perseverance under suffering. And he says, basically, James says, be like Job. You with me? Amen. Well, this commentator says it must he must have meant the Job of chapter 1 and 2. <laughs> he couldn't have meant the Job of 3 to 31. I'm going to say something that's pretty radical. I'm going to say just the opposite. I think he primarily meant the Job from 3 to 31. That's a heavy claim, isn't it? Now, it includes the Job of 1 and 2. Obviously, it is the same person. But I'm going to tell you the perseverance is Job. What we don't realize is between... Verses 3 to 31 are months and months and months of suffering. If you want to look it up later, it's chapter 7, verse 3, I think, where he says it's been months. We're talking chronic suffering. We're not talking a little tiny period of testing and then all of a sudden all is well. Many of us have met people who have chronic suffering. And it's difficult to comfort such people, isn't it?
No, he, we have this quiet submission and trust at the beginning, and then we have bitter lamentation and complaint. And you know, as we will go through the book of Job, we will see something that will become so clear. I wrestled with it myself as I studied it. There are much tragedies brought into Job's life. Test number one, he loses all his wealth and is standing in the community because back then you have a lot of things that meant God blessed you. So when you lose all that, oh, we got to get away from him. He's like a pariah. Something must be wrong. And then we know he lost all that was dear to him, his dear children, every single one of them in a fell swoop, gone. As I mentioned weeks ago, it's bad enough that a parent would have to bury a child. I explained to you in my family's history there's been a number of cases of that. I mentioned one to you, but there have been many others. But can you imagine ten? As a pastor, how do you do that funeral? What in the world do you say in that message? That's a hard message. But it wasn't done for Job, was it? Then after that, he had these extreme, probably rare boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his sole of his feet. He was in such pain, sitting on an ash heap, that he took broken pottery, and the only relief, and it didn't give much relief, I'm sure, was to cut these sores. And of course, add insult to injury, the trials aren't over, his own wife. Get it over with, kill yourself. Curse God and die. We're still not done, we're going to see in a minute. He's got a couple more trials, and I'll tell you, I think literally to pour the vinegar in the wound are his three friends. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks for nothing, right? That wasn't Job's biggest problem, though. Throughout the book, Job's biggest problem is where's God? In one sense, it's the presence of God. Why are you pursuing me to death like this? He's going to get to the point where he's going to say, I wish you would go the whole way. The silence of God. The not knowing what in the world is going on here. Remember, Job did not know chapters 1 and 2. He didn't see the heavenly vision. It's inexplicable how the God he's walked with his whole life would bring this into his life. Seemingly, for no reason. And that's the thing, brothers and sisters, we see there's a reason, but Job doesn't. I want you to see something that's really important before I, I get into this. We need to see that even in his suffering and in his lamentations and in his sorrow, although we will see throughout our study of it, Job certainly had times where he colored outside the lines. All right, kids, you color. Sometimes you make a mistake, you color outside the lines. Even though sometimes he colored outside the lines, in the main, in the main, Job spoke, spoke what was right about God, and he did not curse God. This isn't my opinion. At the end of the book, look, here's, here's, the, here's a big, powerful aha for me. 
Remember chapters 1 and chapters 2, after each test, it says God did, I mean, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Remember that? And then in chapter 2, God did, I mean, Job did not sin by what he said with his mouth. Amen. And then you have those middle chapters, those long chapters. And you expect when God comes and confronts him, you expect what? Job finally said something wrong with his mouth. But is that what you get? No, this is what God says at the end of the book, after Job's bitter complaining. This is what you get, chapter 42, verse 8, when God is, is rebuking his friends, and we all say, hallelujah, and there's much rejoicing. Sorry, that was me anyway. Uh, you see this. God says to his friends, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. I'm sorry, that's where I got to go, huh? commentators and as I say many times the Bible clarifies the commentators the commentaries so as we examine and learn from Job's cries of pain and perplexity under severe trial and as we see his friends tiresome and insensitive advice we need to keep in mind that according to God in the main Job spoke was right about God and his friends did not now one other caveat that did not mean that his friends never said anything that was right. It didn't mean that Job's friends didn't sometimes say even biblical things. The problem we're going to see with Job's friends is the way that they, first of all, applied the truth. It's like giving aspirin to a person that's suffering from a fatal disease. And sometimes worse, it's giving the wrong prescription, which we know can be lethal. Amen. And we're also going to see they had too simplistic a view of suffering. It was superficial. So we're going to see that there's a place, believe it or not, where Paul quotes one of these friends. But the problem with the friend is he applied it in a way that was absolutely 100% incorrect. Now, the real problem of Job's lamentations, I want you to see this, is here's the question. It's good for everybody to know this. It's very practical. Can a blameless and upright man, in other words, a godly person, who speaks wonderful words of grace under pressure, also fall into the slough of despond and express some pretty dark feelings and thoughts and still be an example of God's of the workmanship of God's grace and mercy. I hope, you, hope to show you throughout our study of Job that both of those are compatible. There are two sides of the same coin. This whole submission, quiet submission to God, the Lord is given, the Lord takes away, and also this crying out in pain, excruciating pain, and asking why in confusion. It's the same man. It's the blameless man, the upright man. He has this ruthless honesty because as, as he just, just cries out about this profound perplexity concerning the ways and the will of the God to whom we have to do. And I know this is true because here we have the God-breathed God account of a blameless and upright man's struggle at make, trying to make sense of his severe suffering in light of what he knows about the goodness and the justice 
of a holy and righteous God. Job is trying, as one commentator puts it, desperately to get his faith and his experience together. So as he does that, this is the bottom line. I think we should give him some slack. You with me? Two things I want to point out, and I'm watching. We're going to see the lamentation of an upright man and the unreliability of his friends. We'll see how far we get. All right? Chapter 3 starts with something very striking. Job curses. Whoa, the devil thought for a minute, he, oh, maybe I got him. But notice, Job doesn't curse God, does he? What Job curses is the day of his birth, as Jerry so eloquently read for us this morning. He wishes he would, he would have died at birth. He says, I wish that I never came out. Now that's a man in some serious pain. This is a man under severe duress. These are the words of a man who are wracked in pain on the bed of suffering. These are the words of a man who had so much to lose, and in a moment, he lost it all. A man who eventually would say, please go the whole way and put me out of my misery. Now, a word about cursing here, and it's very important, I mean, in terms of cursing God. It's a very interesting feature about this book that the great sin presented to us in the book of Job is cursing God. I'll tell you why I say that. We know that was the whole debate between God and Satan, right? The whole big thing is I'll have him curse you. And if he does, right, the devil wins the the wager, as it were, and God is not glorified. And, of course, cursing God is a sin to be avoided at all costs. Amen? But we need to understand that as heinous a sin that cursing God is, it's not the unforgivable sin. Now why would I say that? Remember in chapter 1 when Job offers up sacrifices for his children? You remember that? Some of us? You remember why? I'll tell you why. This is what he says. Perhaps my children have sinned and what? Cursed God in their hearts. So there is atonement for sin in the book of Job. (laughs) Sometimes people get confused about that. There is forgiveness. And it does point to that final sacrifice of Jesus. Praise his name. And I say that because I have counseled people who have come to me broken and, they, and they're confessing sins to me, and I'm like, okay, okay, bring that to the Lord, bring it to the Lord, and then they finally come out with it. I cursed God. And they think it's all over. And I tell them it's not all over if you come to God in true repentance and rely on the finished work of Jesus. Amen? I want us to see that. I don't want to jump past that. People get confused. But of course, here's the thing. Here's the thing with Job. Job knew there was forgiveness of sins available, even in his day, looking forward to a deliverer. But here was the thing that plagued Job. He didn't curse God. He didn't do some heinous thing. 
There wasn't some secret sin that he was hiding from the rest of the congregation. Job was a righteous man, blameless. He walked with God by faith. Now, he didn't know the scenario that went on in heaven, but he knew this. He knew that whatever he was dealing with now, there was no particular thing that, that provoked God into treating him like this. And then in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 3, this is the real mind bender for Job. He says this, look at verse 25 of chapter 3. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Remember we heard a prayer request before, if we could have a couple days of rest. Job got none. Now here's the problem. Who does the Bible say there's no rest for? Anybody remember? Who's there no rest for? The, no, not the weary. Good, good guess. People, people misuse that. that that's, like, that's like one of those sayings we think comes from the Bible. We do that. No rest for the weary. No. No rest for who? The wicked. There's no rest for the wicked. Um, if there's no rest for the wicked, listen, this is Job's reasoning. And I ain't wicked. How come I ain't getting rest? You with me? The other thing, who does the Bible say what, what they dread will come upon them? The righteous? No. The wicked. Proverbs 10, 24. What the wicked dread will overtake them. What the righteous desire will be granted. Do you understand Job's cry? I'm not getting what I desire. You know, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire. It ain't working. Listen, this is the way you might want to hear it. There was the old maxim, if you do right, you'll be blessed. If you sin, you'll be punished. Pretty simple, right? Well, Job basically says, Houston, we have a problem. Why am I suffering like this so severely? And he's going to wrestle with this for 29 chapters, which covers, as I mentioned earlier, many months of Job's life. But now, after this speech, the first time he's talked after seven days of quiet suffering, he gives a speech of mourning, and his first friend to speak simply can't believe that Job doesn't see the answer right in front of his face. He's like, dude, it's so simple. You're driving me crazy. And let's see, as we look at now the unreliability of his friends, let's see what Eliphaz says to poor Job to try to supposedly comfort him. He has the answer. Eliphaz, he's, he's understood. He's got it all figured out. And as we take a look at this, we're going to see this. First thing he does with Job, this is what he does to his suffering friend. Listen to this. He says, you're a hypocrite. How would you like that? You're on your bed of suffering, and one of your three best friends says, you're a hypocrite. So what he says, look, if someone ventures a word with you, uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, will you be impatient? But who could keep from speaking? In other words, dude, I can't hold this in after hearing you talk. Think of how you've instructed many, how you've strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You, you have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. 
In other words, you give this advice to everybody else. Now all of a sudden it happens to you and oh, it doesn't apply to you. You know who you sound like, Job? All those innocent people in prison. You know what I'm talking about? In prison ain't nobody done it. Did you ever notice that? Oh, I'm in here, but I didn't really do it. And it's funny, right? It's funny because we're all like, that's what we're all saying. But see, how, how badly would it stink to be the one guy who really is innocent in prison? Because <laughs> no matter how much you try to say it, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even your own lawyer is like, oh, I'm sure he didn't do it. But anyway, let's give this defense, right? That's what's going on here with Job. <laughs> Job really didn't do it. And yet his friend is treating him as if he did. I don't know about you, but that's painful. That's really painful. Look, here's the problem, says Eliphaz. The problem for him is pretty simple, if Job would just listen to him. Should not, he says, your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope. In other words, if you're so pious, if you're so blameless, then you got nothing to worry about. Verse 7, consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? And so on. Bottom line, you done did something wrong, Job. Fess up. Because there ain't no way God would be causing you to suffer like this if you were innocent of great wrongdoing. So it's pretty simple for Eliphaz. He's got the answer. You do right, God will bless you. You do wrong, God will punish you. No exceptions. Apparently, Eliphaz hasn't heard about I before E, what? except after C. In other words, he doesn't understand there are general rules in life, but there are exceptions to those rules. In other words, it is true. Sometimes suffering comes because you sin. Can I get an amen? amen. The Bible even teaches that God disciplines those he loves. I, I think of that verse in, in um, the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 119. Where Dave says, before I, David says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, <laughs> I take heed according to your word. So there are times that's the right medicine for the right ill. The problem here is it's way too superficial of a diagnosis for Job. Way too simplistic and absolutely wrong, the wrong medicine. And here's the thing. We're going to see again and again that all three of Job's friends' advice continually apply the wrong medicine to Job's ills. They had this tidy, simplistic universe of the innocent are blessed, the guilty are punished, period. But what happens? What happens when suffering hits the righteous? What happens? Well, I'm going to tell you their view of suffering I'm only going to go a few more minutes now, but I want you to stay with me. Their view of suffering is both consistent with pagan religion and traditional religion. Here's what I want to tell you. Acts 28, you might remember the story. Um, they, they sail to Malta, Paul and his merry band, uh, band of uh, followers of Christ. And they get to Malta, and, and the natives there receive them really warmly, and he's by the fire, and do you remember what happens? A viper comes up and bites Paul. Do you remember that? And the natives go, oh, he must have offended the gods. 
he must be under a curse because something bad happened to him. You remember that? And then, of course, Paul shakes it off, and God miraculously heals him. But the point there is, what's their view? Something bad happened, therefore what? You must have done something bad to deserve it. That's the pagan view, isn't it? Here, in case you want to pick on pagans, John chapter 9. Jesus is with his disciples. They see a man born blind. Do you remember what the disciples say? Who sinned that this man is born blind? His parents or him? And what does Jesus say? Neither. But that the works of God may be displayed in this man's life. Very interesting here in Job, isn't it? Why is Job suffering? So that the work of God may be displayed. It's one thing that we can learn from the book of Job. It's that suffering is not always the result of sin. There could be many other reasons God is allowing suffering in the lives of his people. And I think there is a big takeaway, even before we get into some more juicier things, and, and that's this. Sometimes what we need to say to our brothers and sisters in their suffering is we don't know. We don't know why God, the exact reason why you're suffering. And that, listen, there is a dark night of the soul that could happen to any of God's people. We all could go through this, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but in God's sovereign, wise purposes. And I think we can also learn, maybe it's better to just snap it, big boy. Zip it, in other words. Maybe it's, it's good for us to just have that presence. Say, I don't know, brother, but I'm here. Now, it's interesting the way that uh, Job's friend tries to bolster his argument because he could, I'm sure he's looking at Job and he can see Job's like not buying it. So listen to what he does. And, and listen, I got to say this one. Oh, I love this one. What happens when somebody realizes that their argument's real weak? I saw a vision. Oh, now, hey, come on, church. Now I'm preaching. Because if I saw a vision, and, and notice what he talks about. He says, and it went before me. <laughs> and he goes, and the hair, uh, this sounds so modern, doesn't it? The hair in my body stood on end. I had goosebumps. And, and this mysterious figure came to me. And I kind of like what Luther said when people would try to contradict the true message of the gospel. And they would say, the spirit told me this and the spirit told me this. Luther said, I slap your spirit in the snout. <laughs> Sorry. Um, don't try this at home. But in all seriousness, the whole point is, this is some goofy stuff here. He's really reaching for it. No, there is no karma and that's, that's, that's the, the confusion. That's where, where the struggle comes in. You know, don't you, don't you ever look around and say, how come the wicked are prospering? Do you ever notice that? You ever look at that? That guy ain't following God, and he ain't sick a day in his life. Psalm 73, right? And don't you ever look, man, this guy has been faithfully loving and serving God, and he can't catch a break. You ever see that? So karma don't work. What comes around in this life, don't, what goes around doesn't always come around. And then people will say, well, look, doesn't the Bible say you will reap what you sow? Yeah, keep reading. 
when will you reap what you sow? In this life? Not according to Galatians. In the life of the world to come. Very different than saying it's going to happen here. Here's the key. And I'm going to come to a close here. I don't want to because it's starting to get really good. But here's the thing I want you to see. In Eliphaz's theology, and also up to this point, the theology of Job. Don't forget this. Job used to think like this too. He was, these were his three buddies. There was simply no room for undeserved suffering. It didn't make, they didn't have any place in their beliefs for someone suffering for no reason that they could see. Undeserved suffering. But here's the interesting thing. That's what Job is going to have to come to terms with, and he will come to terms with it, whereas the three friends are just like, their heads are <laughs> thick, right? And it's kind of like what Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So Job had great theology, he thought, and then he got punched in the face, and then he realized, okay, <laughs> we got to go a little deeper. <laughs> my, my little pat answers, like, like the whole idea, if you're suffering right now, just remember, the teacher is always silent during a test. I say, <laughs> because I'll tell you what, Job later is going to say, that's the whole pain of it. That does not comfort me. That causes me more pain. Why is the teacher silent? You with me? We really got to be careful of these cliches that we throw to people who are in severe suffering. But you know, the interesting thing is there was someone else that suffered undeservingly. And he too was questioned, like what must he have done to be hanging on a cross like a cursed man? Job didn't know this yet. We are blessed that we look back at Job through the cross. And we see the man who was absolutely blameless. Job had to make sacrifices. He was not perfect. Jesus was the sacrifice. And it's in him that we find forgiveness, righteousness. And even when we don't know why, we know the one who suffered the most, unlike these three friends, is a trustworthy and faithful friend who will be by our side Till the moment of our dying and then beyond. That's the gospel. Job prefigured, in a way, the suffering servant who was Jesus. I'm going to close it there for today. I don't want to. This really isn't done. But we'll pick it up next time we get into Job and we'll hit the ground running. All right? Let's pray. Father, there is so much here. Forgive me for my inadequacy in bringing it to your people. But we do thank you for your work in the life of this dear brother, Job, who uh, someday in heaven I'd love to sit and listen to. In the joy of a new body, that in the time of his suffering, he couldn't even think about very much. But we do thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus, that you suffered not for your sins, 
but for ours. And we do thank you that even when we can't explain why we're going through what we're going through, that just knowing that you are a good God, you are a just God, and that you do have reasons, it does bring us great strength and great comfort. And God, help us not to be worthless counselors, but to be those who will sit and cry and mourn and love and even question alongside of our brothers and sisters in suffering. God, teach us much more from this book as we've just begun to scratch the surface. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.